All right. Well, welcome. Um, uh, we're studying uh, the book of Revelation at uh, your request of a number of uh, years ago. And we've worked our way through Daniel, we worked our way through the Olivet Discourse of Jesus, worked our way through the key parts of the Thessalonian letters. Now we're studying Revelation. We're, I'm not sure I could say halfway through it, but we're, we're getting close to being halfway through it. This sheet, which I distributed and Fred has made available electronically, is my uh, sheet that I didn't do it, a friend of mine did it, but my sheet that I use, I think this brings clarity to how to think about and organize the book of Revelation. People are confused by the book. And because they're confused by the book, they don't study the book. And that's, that's not a good, a good response. It is part of the Word of God. We need to study it and understand it. And uh, again, I want to repeat something. As we have done in this group, in my view, and I've done this for quite a few years, the proper way to study the book of Revelation is to study Daniel first and then study the other New Testament references and some of the, the minor prophets, but then get to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is assuming you know all that because it quotes from or alludes to those details over and over and over again. You do know those. That's my assumption. But you do know them or you've been exposed to them and a lot of you have the notes. So the book of Revelation, once you get past the introductory chapters, the seven churches, chapter 2 and 3, and those magnificent, marvelous scenes in the throne room of God, chapters 4 and 5, from 6 through 19, the timeline, the chronology, the key elements that keep our focus in the book of Revelation are the sequence of three judgments, three Seal, three trumpet, three bowl. We haven't gotten to the three bowl judgments, or the uh, third segment, the bowl judgments. We've done the seven seal judgments. We've done the seven trumpet judgments. Secondly, so that's the, that's the theme. That's the narrative. That's the key. That keeps you on track, those sequence of judgments. Secondly, and the, the way this chart <coughs> reflects it, there are a series of parentheses bunny trails, we sometimes call them in this class, but a series of parentheses where you get off the narrative and the text is telling us something. The first one is in 7 where we read about the 144,000. In chapter 11, etc. We are in the end of one of those bunny trails, one of those parentheses. Chapters 12 and 13 introduce us to the key seven personages of this period. We're done with that. And now chapter 14, which we're almost done with, we'll finish in just a minute, um, helped to helps to introduce, and that's what I'm going to do up here on this mess I've written up here, the last sequence of judgments, the seven bold judgments. Okay? So I want to pick up with 14 in just a minute. Now, everything I've just said is summary. Is everybody with me on that? If you've been in this class the last couple of months, this is review. If you haven't been... You're probably lost, but there's nothing I can do about that. Get caught up. No, okay. All right, is, is everybody reasonably with me? If you're following, we're in page uh, 31 of the note packet as well. All right, now, we were introduced in the first part of chapter 14. Remember, this is the last of one of those parentheses, those bunny trails, to the 144,000 again. We saw them in chapter 7. They are the ministers, representatives of the gospel during this period of time Jesus calls the tribulation. 
Okay? Now, what happens in verse 6 of chapter 14 through verse 20 of chapter 14? Now, follow me very carefully as I look at this mess I've written up here. We're introduced to two groups of angels, three each. You with me so far? The first three angels, as they announce some material, are actually reminding people that in the midst of this chaos and terror and horror of the tribulation period, period, God's grace is still evident. He's still giving people an opportunity to respond. The second group of three angels announces, <clears throat> excuse me, announces what you will see in just a minute, because that begins in chapter 16, the horrific bold judgments, the last series of sequence of judgments. And so one is reminding us of God's grace, by one I mean one group of three. The other is reminding us of the judgment of God, which is really what the tribulation is about. There's a brief interlude in chapter 15, which we'll, we'll deal with very briefly. I just want, I want you to see the structure of this. When you see the structure of something, and you sort of get it, that helps you to just fill in the, the blanks. So you have a sort of an idea of what they're doing here? Not what they are doing, what, what, the, what the, uh, John is writing down as God tells him to do it. So does this make sense? Mm-hmm. All right, I want to I ask you a question. This is, a, this is almost a kindergarten-type question, but it's probably an important one to ask every now and then. The Bible speaks... Almost every single book, not quite every single book, but almost every book in the Bible speaks of angels. This book, Book of Revelation, angels are all over the place. They're almost in every chapter. One of the challenges with that term angel is angel, as the English term, is really a transliteration of a Greek term. You understand what I mean by transliteration? You're just bringing letter from one language, letter, to a new language letter, you're just bringing it over. So it's A-N-G-E-L in Greek is A-N-G-E-L in English. In Greek, it's actually angelos. Now, the word angel or angelos in Greek just means messenger. Sometimes it can be a human messenger. But most of the times, it's a divine messenger. All right, so that's technically what the term angel means. But the Bible also makes clear that these divine messengers are created beings. They're not humans, and they're not God, of course, but they are, they are a, a, a group of beings God creates to be his messengers to planet Earth. There are another group of angels that serve him in the, in the throne room and so on. But one of the things that's just consistent throughout the Bible, they are the messengers from God to the human race. And that's the function they're serving. That's the function they're serving here. They are announcing something. They're the messengers that God is using to announce another sequence of events. So you might remember, just we just celebrated Christmas. Gabriel at the Annunciation shows up at Mary's house in Nazareth and announces something to her. What is it? <clears throat> You're pregnant by the Holy Spirit and you're going to give birth to the Messiah. God didn't show up and tell her that. An angel showed up and told her that. Then her husband, uh, her actually engaged, they're not formally married yet, but Joseph, he is absolutely coming apart because the gal whom, he's a, whom he is uh, 
engaged to is pregnant. And what's his immediate thought? She's had sexual relations with another man. She's been unfaithful to me. And so it tells us that an angel shows up to Joseph and announces to him the same thing. Your engaged girl, Mary, whom you will get married to, is pregnant with the Messiah. And so it changes Joseph's whole perspective. I'm saying that you see this throughout the Bible, these messengers from God, and they announce something, they declare something, um, they introduce something. So I just want to remind you of that. Angels are really, really important created beings. And they serve a significant function throughout the Bible. And here again, we see God using angels to announce something, to introduce something. Okay, that's just a review. Got it? That's good. (laughs) Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. These three, this first group of three angels that are announcing, in a way, reminding the readers that God is still a God of grace. Verse 6. I saw another angel flying in the midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth and the sea and springs of waters. Okay, that's the first angel's announcement. Is that a positive announcement? Is that an encouraging announcement? Is that important? Yes. In the midst of all the chaos of the tribulation period, God is still offering to people an opportunity to repent and choose to to follow him. And the phrase is, in in verse 6, eternal gospel. It's the same gospel. It's the gospel that that Paul preached. It's the gospel that Jesus preached. It's the same gospel. Okay, now let let me ask you a question. You should be able to answer this. Who are the primary human vehicles that God is using to proclaim the gospel. Us. Well, now, in the tribulation, now it's us, but in this this period, it's 144,000. They are the primary, primary representatives of God in terms of declaring the gospel. That's their assignment. Go back to chapter 7. So I'm, I'm just, it's really, it's just interesting as God the Holy Spirit is inspiring John to write that this is included, that this first group of angels is announcing, maybe a better way I put it as a reminder, reminding us, the readers, reminding the people who will read this during the tribulation in the future, and reminding those in the very early church who are just reading this and trying to figure out what in the world is going on. No matter what occurs, God still is offering a chance to respond to his grace. And so that's what's going on in this first angel. Second is in verse 8, the second, I mean second angel, this first group of three. And another angel, second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, that will throw you off just a little bit because we haven't seen this discussed yet. It's coming up in chapter 17 and chapter 18. But it is a reminder of God's grace in this sense. God's still offering the gospel, but he's also announcing the end is near. 
Babylon, and we'll talk about this when we get to chapter 17 and 18, it'll more than likely be next week. Babylon is the term used in the book of Revelation to represent the political, commercial, and religious empire of the Antichrist. That's the term that's used. We've talked so far in our study, and we haven't done a lot with this yet, but we'll get into it a little bit more in a minute. But the first three and a half years of this period, Jesus calls the tribulation. This Antichrist, this beast, as he's called in Revelation, and many other titles he has through the Bible, has been consolidating his power. He is now the undisputed world ruler. And what the Bible, in, from here on out, the book of Revelation from here on out, is going to use the term Babylon as the term to describe this empire he's put together. Are you with me? Now, we'll talk about its characteristics in chapter 17, chapter 18, so that's coming up. But Babylon is the term, and it's a metaphor. Let me ask you this. Historically and biblically, when you hear Babylon, what do you think of? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. The capital of the, of the empire in the Middle East, of Mesopotamia. Assyria is first, followed by Babylon. Who was the ruler of Babylon at the time of Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar. Did Babylon represent something positive or did Babylon represent something evil? It represents something evil. So Babylon is used in the Bible. The Apostle Peter in his epistle, 1st and 2nd Peter, uses Babylon as a metaphor for the kingdom of evil. So that's how it's using it here. Now, it's just, I don't want you to stumble over this. This isn't hard. You read this Babylon, what's this mean, Babylon? <laughs> Don't let, it, don't let it confuse you. Babylon is the metaphor, the key term that symbolizes the kingdom of evil. In the book of Revelation, it's the empire that Antichrist assembles. Got it? So the announcement is, it's going to collapse. Third angel. This is a little more complicated and another angel, a third one, followed him in verse 9, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or in his hand, okay, now that should not surprise you. Where did we study that? In chapter 13. As the beast, is, is called Antichrist in other parts of God's word, but as the beast, as the Antichrist consolidates his rule, and consolidates his power, he insists that everyone in the world worship him. And as we read at the end of chapter 13, I think it was last week, what is called, the figure called the false prophet is the one who facilitates and helps support this worldwide worship of the beast. And as a part of that, as a part of you, not you and me because we won't be there, but as a part of submitting to that authority, you were instructed to take a mark. You remember what that mark is? Six, six, six. So all verse 9 is saying is this is now a message, a message to those who have accepted the gospel. And it's a reminder that God as a God of grace is going to deal with these people. You haven't taken the mark. What's going to happen to those that have? Verse 10, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. 
And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and the image, whoever sees the mark of the name. Verse 10 and 11 are not nice verses. Verse 10 and 11 are horrific verses. But what those verses declare categorically, there's no ambiguity here. There's not any lack of clarity. Those who reject Jesus Christ and embrace Antichrist and follow him will forever be judged. If you are, re- if you are a person in the tribulation period and you're reading this, now this is going to sound awful, but let's think of it in that perspective. Is that comforting to you, verse 10 11? Is that encouraging you that your God is in control and this evil that's permeating the planet is not going to succeed, that God is going to call them to account? I mean, the answer to that, and this isn't perverse, the answer to that is yes, it is, because God is not going to allow evil to triumph. He's going to call evil to account. Now, that's kind of hard, but... I don't think it's unclear, it's just hard. So the first angel in this first group of three announces that the eternal gospel is still available. People can still respond to it. The second angel announces that God is going to triumph over this evil empire that the Antichrist has established. And thirdly, those who have followed him will be called to account. Therefore, verse 12, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. What's perseverance? What's What's another word for perseverance? Patience. Patience, stronger than that. Survival, Survival, endure, hang in there, don't give up. In other words, verse 12 is because of what the first three angels... I'm getting, I'm preaching now. Because, Because of the words of the first three angels, Those of you who are going through this tribulation period and you're reading this, you've come to faith as a result of the ministry of 144,000. Don't give up. Don't give up. Endure. Hang in there. It's not going to last. This is the perseverance of the saints. Is it important, just, 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 having nothing to do with the tribulation period per se, but just thinking about it from this perspective. Is it important, comforting, and helpful to you to know that evil's not going to triumph? Sure. Three of you are shaking your head yes. The rest of you are playing living statues. So. But, I mean, the answer to that, I, I, I want to encourage you, the answer to that is yes, that is to be encouraging to us. And that is one of the many, many, many values of studying the book of Revelation. All the details, and we're going through the very significant details. But the, one of the main points of the book of Revelation is evil is not going to triumph. Evil's days are numbered. Evil is not going to win. And sometimes, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, depending on the, the day, it's really hard for me to watch the evening news. Yeah. I'm 15 minutes into the evening news, and I'm, 
Oh my goodness, this is a horrible day. ISIS has struck this, cut off the heads of 10 more people, and there's been a bomb in Istanbul. I mean, it's just on and on, let alone what's happening in the, in the, in the presidential politics of this year, which has been going on since 2007, it seems like. And we have a whole other year of this yet. That, it, there was some hyperbole mixed in there. I don't know if you caught that. But I mean, you can just become, oh my goodness. Remind yourselves, the Lord is going to triumph. Evil's days are numbered. And regardless of ISIS and Iran and all of the other things that are going on in our world, it's not going to triumph. You know, uh, most of us uh, own companies or have had or employees in companies, and and uh, we understand right and wrong. And if an employee, and this is an employee situation, but if someone disregards all the rules that are clearly set out in the orientation manual or whatever it might be, that person probably, if, if we discussed it here, that violates the rules of the company if they are fired, we would say that's justified, it's equitable. And then we transfer this concept of justice and equity and, and love, God's love, and we tend to think maybe God is, is eternally loving to all people regardless of whether they listen to his leading or follow his directions. And um, so you're saying there comes an end to that love, and the end of love is the culmination, fulfillment of our relationship with God. And the other side of it is, is that we, that love is balanced with justice. And what you're saying is that there will be a time coming when God's justice will prevail as well as his love. I mean, That's right. I mean, some, That's some people right. think, well, he wouldn't do that to me. He mm -hmm. wouldn't send me away from him eternally. But what we're suggesting here is that maybe that could happen. And... Let's take it out of the realm of could to the realm of it. I mean, it will. It will happen. And this, the, the harsh, the seeming harshness of 10 and 11, is, uh, verse 10 and 11, is what you just said, the key word you just used for it, justice. Let me go down a bunny trail for just a minute, okay? Um <clears throat> How does the scripture, how, how does the Bible, how does Jesus, because Jesus talked more about hell than any other human being on earth, how is hell presented? The Bible tells us that hell was created for Satan. God created it for him. That's why he created it. But the Bible also makes it clear that hell and I'm going to put it theologically, hell is a necessary element 
if God is just. C.S. Lewis, in a book that if you've never read, it's in a little paperback, it's one of the most important books I think Lewis wrote, called The Great Divorce. But in that book, Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. Because God does not force you to love him. He does not force you to obey him. Lewis has in that book, and he, he does it, it's, it's, it's like a, uh, it's almost, uh, uh, well, I won't get into all that. The, the, he has just this one section at the end of that little uh, story. He has human beings in hell, and God has said to them, Oh, let me let me rephrase it. God says to the, the believer says to to the Lord Jesus, the, the the one who has trusted Him, the one who believes in Him, the one who has faith in Him, the one who loves Him, says to Jesus, "Your will be done in my life." Those who reject that message and are in hell, God says to them, "Your will be done." In other words, now this. This is not my language. This is C.S. Lewis's language, but I find that helpful in explaining it. Hell is simply a trajectory of what people have chosen in this life. People choose to reject God. People choose to reject his grace. People choose to reject his goodness. People choose to reject his offer in Christ. So what's eternity? It's a trajectory. You know, understand me by trajectory. It's a trajectory of what you've chosen in this life. You've chosen, you've chosen, not you, you guys, I don't think have, but you've chosen to reject God. And God is relentless in his grace. He continues to pursue you throughout your entire life. He's offering you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to respond to his grace. Whether it's the evidence of his creation, the evidence of conscience, his moral law, the evidence of Jesus, and you just reject it. I don't want anything to do with you. And so God says, your will has been done. This is what you've chosen. Why would eternity be any different than time? If you choose to reject God now, why would he say, well, that's okay, I'll still let you into heaven? That's unjust. That, that doesn't make sense. You don't have a consistent just God. You have a milk toast. It's a hard way to speak of God. But, but, but God is saying, I'm just, I'm holy, I'm righteous, but I'm loving, gracious, and merciful. Those two come together at the cross. I've made it available. And I'm, go- I'm going to give you evidence of this over and over and over and over and over and over and over again through your life. And every day you wake up, you have a choice. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow my own needs, or my own desires, my own lusts, my own wants? Is it all about me or is it all about God? God keeps reminding us who he is, keeps reminding us of what he's done, keeps reminding us of his grace. I'm assuming and I believe, because some of you I know well, some of you, but I believe everyone around the table has made that decision of faith to follow Christ. You've made that decision. Your destiny is eternity with him. But the person who consistently rejects the grace of God 
Eternity is just a trajectory of those choices. There's a lady uh, whom I've known for a long time, she and her husband. Uh, they went to Israel with me twice. He was a very sick man for quite a few years, but he was able to be mobile. But he just rejected Christ. He goes to Israel with me twice. He just rejects Christ. I talked to him numerous times. Uh, he was sick last uh, fall, uh, uh, last spring it would have been actually, with heart condition. I mean, really severe. He was about 75 years old, 76 years old. And the heart disease was just sapping the strength out of his life. He's getting to the point where he could hardly move. And his wife, um, she called me. She says, he's in his last days, and he refuses to trust Jesus. What am I going to do? And I just said to her as we prayed over the phone, I said, Harriet, he is in God's hands. He's heard the message. He knows what he has. He's heard it for decades. He just, I don't need Jesus. It was 11 o'clock at night. He was in a wheelchair. He wheels into Harriet's bedroom and said, Harriet, tears are streaming down his face. I just gave in and trusted Jesus. Four o'clock the next morning, five hours later, he died. Amen. I say that because now there's a man who just, he, he was knowingly, intentionally rejecting Jesus Christ. I mean, he just, he knew exactly what he needed to do. He just refused to do it. I don't need Jesus. And it was at the last hours of his life, and I don't know what other word to use, he finally gave in. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Like the thief on the cross. It's just, and, I, and I'm sure you, would, you do not know how liberating that was for her. Because her, her, her fear was, understandably, her husband, whom she spent her entire life with, they were married like 60 years or something, that her she her husband is going to die and go into eternity without Christ. So she had that incredible. So his funeral, what? Oh my goodness! What a <coughs> triumphant funeral that was. Not on all he did throughout his life, but what happened to him in the last hours of his life. That because that's really what was important. What this text is telling us is find comfort, and that's that's hard. But find comfort. He's saying, God is going to hold these who embrace the beast accountable. All right. Jim. So when he talks about the preservation of the saints, he's not necessarily talking about the preservation of their lives because there will be martyrs. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's the perseverance, the endurance. Hang in there. Keep your, because it says, their faith in Jesus. Keep the focus of your faith, it's on Christ. He will triumph. And because we've talked about this before, these events associated with tribulation are going to be so overpowering, overwhelming, the deception, the words Jesus uses in Matthew 24, are going to be so intense that even the elect could be deceived, it says. So it's going to be a period unlike anything in human history. All right, now look at verse 13. There's a there's a little, it's like a tiny interlude, but it just, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. It's the only time in the book of Revelation where the words of the Holy Spirit are recorded. 
It's one of the few passages in all of the Bible where the words of the Holy Spirit are recorded. But it's, 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 again, it's a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement for those who are living through this horror of the tribulation. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In effect, most of them being martyrs. Now, verse 14 through the end of the chapter, that is chapter 14, is another group of three angels, a second group of three angels. And their words are words of horror. Their words of judgment. Now, and I, I mentioned this in the notes too, the language, the figurative metaphorical language of these angels is the language of the Old Testament. Language of the Old Testament is associated with the day of the Lord. We've talked about that phrase a lot. It's the language of the wine press of God's wrath. Now, in the ancient world, I mean, you know what a wine press is, don't you? I mean, you, you have to put tremendous pressure on the grapes to get the wine, to get the liquid. And I mean, to get caught in one of those means you're done, you're over, you'll never survive it. And so, uh, I don't mean to make that humorous, but that's really true. But what is used now here in the Old Testament, and now in this particular section, is this wine press metaphor is used for God's judgment. And so, and I looked, I'm reading now in verse 14, and behold, a white cloud sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. Who is that? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that. One like a son. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. How do you know that's Jesus? What Old Testament passage would you go to? Daniel 7. That's it. Daniel chapter 7. 7, 13, and 14. That's good. You got it, though. You're in the right. That's great. It's Daniel 7, 13, 14 and following. One like a son of man comes up the ancient days when she's a kingdom where she's authority. So that's the same image. That's why to understand Revelation, you have to have Daniel. And so now you're, okay, I know who that is. I know exactly what the situation. I got it. Having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Sharp sickle. That's metaphor. That's the language of judgment. That's day of the Lord language out of the Old Testament. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle, reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is figurative language. It's metaphorical language. Language of what? Of judgment. So the Son of Man, the warrior Lamb of God, is about to execute the final judgment. What is that final judgment? It will be the seven bowl judgments. This material, these three angels and the Son of Man, Jesus, and so on, is just introducing the seven bowl judgments, the last judgments of God. All right? Second angel, verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple. And temple, we've seen that, but this is the temple in heaven. We've seen that before which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Verse 18, another angel, one who has the power of fire, came from out from the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because your grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, and threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Now again, this is figurative language. It's Day of the Lord, metaphorical language out of the Old Testament. What's it saying? 
The time for the final judgment of God has come. That's what. It's, that's all it's saying to us. And these angels are announcing it. Angels announce things for God. And that's all they're doing. I mean, don't stumble over this. Don't say, I can't figure This is not hard. When you understand the figurative nature of language and you understand that angels are messengers, that's all they're doing. Verse 20. Quite penetrating verse, actually. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. That's caused a lot of consternation among expositors. Do we understand that literally? Do we understand that figuratively? It, you can find that from both sides. This is the point. <laughs> the result of God's judgment is going to be absolutely horrible. And whether this is literal or figurative, it's going to be, it's going to involve calling to account human beings. Some suggest I just don't know if we can be that dog. Some suggest this just reflects the results of the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Jezreel, which is north of Jerusalem, where that's the last final battle right before Jesus comes back. But I, I guess I don't want to camp on this too much because it's hard to know whether this is, everything's figurative up to this point. Is this figurative too? I, I don't know. But the point is this judgment is going to be so severe and the loss of human life as a result. Remember, it, it lost, this isn't temper tantrum of the deity. This is the result of God's just acts after time, after time, after time, after time, offering them opportunities to repent. God's not calling for count. And the means of this judgment is going to be the bowls, which we will study in chapter 16. So the first group of three announces and reminds us of God's grace and his sovereignty. Second group of three announces the judgments which culminate in the seven bold judgments. The last and final judgment before the return of Jesus. <clears throat> All right. I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it. Are you with me? I mean, I'm, it's just hard, I know, but the best I can to segment this all out, two groups of angels each announcing things, and there's another really brief interlude in chapter, seven, uh, uh, chapter 15, and then we'll see the seven bold judgments. I don't know if we'll get to that this week, but we'll get to it. John. I'll just throw this out. I haven't thought yeah. about it. We, we talk about, and we, earlier here, uh, rejection of God. Yes. Uh, refusal. Rejection. Yes. Uh, or to believe or to follow him. And then repentance has run out. The time for repentance has run out. Where, <clears throat> I guess, all these bad actors, are they aware that they have an opportunity to repent? Do we know anything yeah. about that? I mean, Absolutely. Okay, cool. Absolutely. So just, that's part of the defiance. It, it's, it, that's the right word, the defiance. That's right. Absolutely. Rob? Yeah. Um, some other, some of my friends I've talked about, we've talked about, and I don't really want to get into um, the rapture, but I am curious, <laughs> though, the defining points in time. 
Yeah. This clearly is talking about the beginning of God's wrath. That's right. And it relates to the you know, theories of rapture pre-post and some mid-tribbers, which in one argument is pre-God's wrath. They believe the, mm-hmm. the rapture doesn't occur at the beginning of, of uh, the tribulation because that's not God's wrath. Mm-hmm. This is. So if, if we're to be gone by the time God, it could be before this event. Is, is that a correct assessment? Yes. <laughs> I, is it all right if we don't get into that right now? I mean, it, it's just, um, is, is that okay? Yeah, that's all I wanted to Okay. Look at chapter 15. I'd like to do this before we break. It's short, but it's, it's, it's a little interlude, but I, I just want you to see this. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who have seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Okay, what are the seven plagues? That's chapter 16, the seven bowl judgment. That's all that's telling us. Now, you notice it's very interesting in verse 15, chapter 15, uh, verse 1, they're called great and marvelous. Why? Because this is the final stage of God's judgment. It's almost over. And so what's the response to that? Verse 2, And I saw as it were a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding the harps of God. All right, now again, this is figurative language. But if these are people who came off victorious from the beast, Antichrist, from his image, and the number... Standing on the sea, who are these people? They're the martyrs. They're the people who defied Antichrist. They're the people who refused to bow down to him. In other words, these are the people who stayed faithful to Jesus. They put their faith in him. They responded to the message of 144,000. And presumably the language is they've been martyred. So what does it tell us? Verse 3, they're singing a song. They're playing their harps, tells us at the end of verse 2, and they're singing a song. What song? The song of Moses. This is the song that Moses and the children of Israel sang after what? After the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's armies. So they're singing the same song Moses sang. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, you King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you. Thy righteous acts have been revealed. So they're singing exactly the same song Moses led the children of Israel in singing way back in Exodus chapter 15. What does that tell us? God's works, his majesty, his glory remain the same. And the great victory God manifested over Pharaoh and his armies in the exodus of Israel is the same power and authority and majesty that he's executing as he defeats his final enemies, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the great dragon. So sing praises to him. God is about to form formulate his final victory. And the thing about this is, this is the final victory forever. Evil will forever be defeated. 
which is, I know we don't get excited on a Wednesday over lunch and amen. say yeah. amen or anything yeah. like that, but it's just something to be excited about. This is what God is going to triumph. So, Jim, according to your notes, then the 144,000 will be, will be martyred too then. It seems as we get close to this, so we'll talk about that a little bit later, mm. that they, they are equally martyred. You know? Okay. You know? It's a time of great, and that martyrdom would seem to be defeat, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. It isn't. So. Mm-hmm. And after these things, and in verse 5, we're almost done with this. Let me finish this if we could. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. Now remember, we've talked about that before. We know that from Exodus. We know that from the book of Hebrews. In heaven, there's the, there's the perfect tabernacle. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. Who are these seven angels? The seven plagues? The seven angels who were delivered the seven bold judgments, which is in the next chapter. That's all it's telling us. Clothed in linen, clean, bright, girded with a breast of golden girdle, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of God's wrath. Remember the four living creatures? We were introduced to them back in chapter 1, part of those concentric circles around the throne. So this final wrath of judgment comes from God through the living creature to these seven angels. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God from his power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And that's what chapter 16 is all about. These seven bowls will be, I mean, it's all figurative, but are poured out on earth in the final judgment of God. Now, does chapter 15 make sense to you then? It's like that final interlude. It's, it's, it's triumphant joy because God is about to finish it. And the same song that Moses sang after God, and the children of Israel sang, after, they defeat, after God defeated Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea and all that, they're singing in heaven, as, as God is about to complete his final act of judgment, triumphing over evil, Satan, the dragon, the, the beast, the false prophet, and all that. All right? Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, yep. you think we should start memorizing that song of Moses? Oh. Or just, or just, or just we give it to us at the time of the <laughs> I would encourage you to start memorizing. So it just flows from your life. <laughs> it's a great it's a great hymn to memorize. I mean the, the language of that is just incredible. Great, marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Three titles for God there. Lord God Almighty. There are three titles of God. Righteous and true your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You are alone or holy. It's this future, all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's, great. it's a great song of triumph. It meant so much to the children of Israel after the Exodus. It's going to be even more to the saints at the, at the end of history. Okay. Now, um, I'm going to stop here. I want to introduce a couple of things to you as we get ready, because next I'm not going to start Chapter 16. That's crazy to start it and do it two minutes and then come back and start over again. But, Chad, I want to tell you what we're going to be doing. And this timeline here that you have kind of helped you. I want to give you the big picture of what's... We're almost done with this now. Chapter 16, rapid fire. Bang, 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 bang. The seven bold judgments. It's very fast. Then chapter 17 and chapter 18. And we'll talk about that, but I'm giving you the big picture now. Chapter 17 and 18, summary fashion of the unraveling of Antichrist's empire. 
what he consolidated and built the first three and a half years is starting to come apart. And it will culminate, the it meaning the, the, the coming apart, will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. And then watch chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we're almost there. <laughs> but it's, it, if you can get that sequence, what it is, you have the seven bowl judgments, rapid fire, and then you have, it's, it's, it's sort of a parenthesis, but what it's really doing is it's helping us to understand that this massive commercial, political, religious empire that Antichrist put together is beginning to unravel. And that unraveling will culminate in that great campaign, and we'll see it at the, at, at the end of, of the, the seventh bowl, or the sixth bowl, excuse me, is Armageddon, the, the mountain of Megiddo, that's literally what that means, where the nations of the world will gather to battle. And then, then Jesus comes back. So, I mean, it's, it's just it's kind of exciting in the sense that we're almost to that final triumph uh, in human history of the return of Jesus. You know, I mean, what do you want us to study chapter 16 and 17, you're saying? Or? If you spend some time in 16, I would be pleased. The Lord would be delighted. Amen. <laughs> yeah, so. All right. Any questions? Are you pretty much tracking with me? or? Okay, that's that's really good. I mean... I mean that. If you, if you really get this, you're one of the few people in evangelical Christianity that get revelation. I mean, some people do. I'm being a little facetious there, but that's why I, I just keep coming back to this. It really helped to make it. So we're almost done, and then, um, you know, well, by almost done, I mean, it's going to take another five, six, seven weeks. Because I want to spend some time on heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. I want to talk a lot about that in Revelation 21 and 22. So, okay? But we are getting to the point in six, seven weeks, what do we study next? So I have about seven or eight ideas, but I'm not sure what to do. I might give you some opportunity to respond to. Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. And the book of Revelation is a hard book to study um, because it's filled with so uh, much figurative language and metaphors and similes and all that. But yet it really isn't difficult when we keep Daniel in mind and some of the things Jesus said and some of the things that Paul says in First and Second Thessalonians, all we're doing is filling in the gaps. And to keep that sequence of three judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, helps us to orient ourselves in the narrative so we understand how the rest of the book fits into that. We're almost done with it. The triumph of this, of course, is it's all working to the return of you, Lord Jesus. Uh, you will return in triumph, establish your kingdom, vanquish your enemies, throw the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, bind Satan, and set up your kingdom. Lord, we long for that. That's the triumph of history. It's where everything is moving. And uh, we aren't encouraged to set dates, but we find hope in the fact that the evil and the chaos that we see in our world today isn't going to last. There's coming a day when everyone will confess that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Some because they're subdued, others because they love you and, and desire to obey you and live with you for the rest of eternity. So encourage us with these things we're studying, that we are on the side of righteous victory. We're on the side of God. We belong to you, and there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That defines each and every one of us. 
if we put our faith in him. So give us a good rest of this day and this week and what we do and what we say. Lord, enable us to represent you well. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.